Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Peter Christian Eigner, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mason B. Williams about his new book, City of Ambition, FDR, LaGuardia, and the Making of Modern New York. Mason, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> well, you know, how uh, you came into <laughs> being a historian and. Yeah, well, West Virginian by birth. Um, and uh, how did I become a historian? Uh, you know, I, it's. Uh, I started reading um, history at a pretty young age and for a long time was sort of. Uh, trying to get away from what I think probably ultimately always kind of was what I was supposed to be doing. Um, you know, I, and I, you know, uh, I think by the sophomore year in uh, college, I decided I was going to be a history major and went into Latin American history. Um, and it was only very late as an undergraduate that I um, realized I wanted to be a historian of the United States. Um, in terms of writing about cities, uh, that's sort of an interesting story too. I, I grew up in West Virginia in a deindustrializing city, a uh, place that by the time I was growing up was maybe 18,000 uh, residents, um, had been shrinking every census since World War II. And uh, you grow up in a place like that, you're struck, well, you're around history every day, right? You're surrounded by a built environment, which is there for reasons other than the sort of current uh, economic situation of the place. And so I was just kind of curious, you know, how it is that um, things that were the case in the past have left us with a sort of legacy, which is kind of mismatched in some way, uh, right. with the way things are now. Um, and I, you know, as I think about it, I think I'm still interested in those questions in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Absolutely. You can see that throughout this book. That's, it's a perfect, uh, it's a perfect backstory. Um, and how did you get into, uh, how did you get into uh, school or how did you uh, first get into this project? Well, this project has kind of distant origins as an undergraduate thesis. I wrote it um, as a senior at Princeton University. Uh, then it became a book, and I was going to write it nights and weekends uh, during graduate school. I uh, had started working on a, on a different dissertation project. Um, but uh, while going through the first couple years of graduate school and reading, um, reading the kinds of things you do, uh, the project started seeming more and more interesting to me. Um, and there were some things I wanted to say about the New Deal uh, that kind of fit with the project of, of what had been the book project, which was a, a, a dual biography of Franklin Roosevelt and Fiorella LaGuardia. And so what had been essentially a biographical book grew into a, a history of the New Deal re-envisioned as not a purely national project, but as a collaboration between the federal government and America's um, local governments. Right. You, you talk a lot about this. I mean, historians have, have approached the new deal in, in any number of ways. It's the, it's the big bang in, uh, modern American political history. Um, you talk a lot about, uh, what you call the lost legacy of the new deal. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but the second half of the book, um, talks a lot the, about this. And, and uh, can you tell us uh, what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I think this is sort of opens uh, up a bigger question, which is why I write about the New Deal at all, right? This is a very, um, you know, in some ways, a very familiar period in American uh, political history. Uh, and, you know, there have been tons and tons of books written on this aspect or that aspect of the New Deal. 
so why write another one? Uh, I think that, um, you know, as I look back on it now, uh, the paperback has come out pretty recently. The book has been a couple of years, is a couple of years old at this point. Um, and sort of as I get more perspective on this, I sort of understand that what was bugging me, I think, a little bit is, um, is that we had sort of lost sight of how much the New Deal has done, um, or did do, particularly in its own time. Um, but the legacy is sort of attached to that also. Um, a couple, maybe it was a couple of years before City of Ambition came out, there was um, a very powerful uh, article by uh, a couple of professors at Cornell, um, uh, Jefferson Cowie and um, uh, Salvatore, right? Yes, that's right. Um, it sort of uh, the long exception in, in U.S. history. Long exception in U.S. history, right? Um, so you know, this sort of, in some ways, kind of closed a period of scholarship, uh, which had come out of the sort of, you know, the failure of the sort of '60s Great Society project, the rise of the New Left, and so forth. But then particularly in the 1980s, the end of the New Deal coalition. Um, historians and political scientists, too, had started stressing sort of the frailties of the New Deal project, um, missed opportunities. They were right. trying to explain its ultimate, um, the ultimate collapse of the New Deal coalition and the rise of Reagan and, and the persistence of various kinds of inequalities throughout. And I thought, um, you know, describing the New Deal as the great exception, not the Big Bang moment, right, but the great exception in American political history, um, sort of highlighted how, uh, in some ways, truncated our vision of what it did had become. Um, and so I wanted to tell a story about uh, what seemed to me to be really, you know, strikingly ambitious, but also strikingly durable features of, um, of the New Deal project. Um, and so in a way, I suppose I wanted to recapture um, some of those legacies that I think we'd started losing sight of um, because so much attention had focused on the frailties of the New Deal project. Right. And well, so, you know, um, you have a wonderful section uh, somewhere uh, uh, in the book where you describe, you sort of um, refer the readers to. Uh, some of the many states that the New Deal created and, and, and refers to some of the historiography on this. But um, in following up on this question of what the lost legacy is, you had talked earlier about how this was a period of history where politics were nationalized for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but you make a, a big point to talk about how um, it's not a zero-sum game as some historians uh, portray it, but that there um, is... Uh, that the New Deal was the advent of uh, a new era of cooperative uh, of federalism or intergovernmentalism. Could you uh, say a little bit about that? That's right. So um, I suppose one way of reading uh, the book is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal made possible the kind of local progressive state that Fiorella LaGuardia um, made in New York. Um, that's true. Um, and that, uh, you know, the book goes into some detail about how that was the case, but the opposite is also kind of true, right? Um, capacities that existed at the local level of the American governmental scheme made possible in a lot of ways, um, this, you know, hugely ambitious state building project, uh, in the 1930s. So, um, you know, Roosevelt confronts this vast national <laughs> unemployment crisis, um, which later sort of gets re-envisioned as a macroeconomic crisis also um, in terms of the necessity of counter-cyclical spending. But um, 
you know, he, he promises to put four million people to work um, in the matter right. of a couple weeks. Right. I mean, it, just to, to reduce the thing to, the, to an absurdity, I mean, the, the American national government is not that big in the 19, you know, right. early 1930s, right? It's the post office, the USDA, you know, bit exactly. of the commerce right. department and, and stuff like that. I mean, so... Um, so the reach is exceeding the grasp, you know, as far as the national government is concerned. But um, there are huge operational infrastructural capacities in the American governmental system residing at the local level, right? So um, Roosevelt is able, just as a sort of practical matter, uh, to enact these policies because he has very creatively, and the Congress has very creatively paired the strengths of the American national government, its fiscal capacity, um, its legal capacity with these operational strengths of local governments. And it's that relationship um, that makes the New Deal possible operationally. Happens also that this federal structure affords a political opportunity to enact a very, um, a very ambitious national uh, program um, in a uh, political system where the governing, the dominant coalition consists of everybody from, you know, or socialists basically in cities to um, Southern Democrats who, um, you know, could not do exactly. it all without um, local control uh, of government spending because they're committed to um, the uh, economic underpinnings of a sort of racial caste system um, in the South. So, um, the sort of political features of federalism are well matched with the sort of operational features. And that um, relationship really makes possible um, what we think of as sort of as a, as a Washington story, right? The make of the national and new deal uh, right. really involves re-envisioning the relationships between America's governments. Um, that's yeah, the you, creative you, element enters. You say at one point in talking about this that, you know, on the contrary, from uh, instead of thinking about this as the age when Washington takes over American politics, it's it's because Washington is able to print money, which is something that uh, local governments cannot do, especially during the Depression. Uh, well, at, at any time. Uh, uh, it, it, on the contrary, it enables local action. So it enables a LaGuardia uh, at all to uh, to do things that they couldn't do uh, without uh, Washington. But Washington is also depending upon the New York City's government and its its capacity to enact to administer these programs uh, and other cities uh, to actually uh, make good on these promises that he delivers. That's right. So, um, you know, well, to get back to something we've been talking about a, a moment ago, uh, federalism has, uh, in much of the literature, been seen as purely a barrier to the building of a more robust, equitable national state, right? Um, you think about the ways uh, the Southern uh, legislators did use local authority um, to constrain some of the redistributionist elements of what the New Deal seemed to be doing. Right. Um, that scholarship comes out of this sort of period I've been talking about of stressing the frailties and limits of the national state building project. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, actually. But I think one has to understand that federalism operated in some instances as a barrier and in others as a tool uh, right. it constrained and made possible and and i guess the key point is it made it did both of these at the same time right <laughs> that's why federalism was such a valuable um structural feature for the new deal state builders is that it made possible um 
Fiorella LaGuardia's New York, and it made possible Jim Crow Mississippi um, concurrently. And it did so in ways acceptable to both parts of the political coalition, right? Um, so, so yes, I think, that, you know, what I'm trying to, trying to do, I think, is to sort of um, uh, show the way in which these are sort of both simultaneously true, but also mutually implicated. Um, the, the sort of genius of the New Deal state-building strategy is that it enabled the creation of um, both uh, you know the state that we would be sort of we would be sort of proud of, and this um, state that we've uh, um, come to recognize as the great weakness of of the New Deal project. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, uh, it, it's you know it's a it's a for uh, people that uh, uh, are, are listening. Uh, it's a, it's a fantastically uh, well written book and a, and, a, and, a, and a pure delight to read. I was saying to Mason before the interview started that um, uh, I've been very jealously guarding my time the last few weeks, but I, I found it very difficult to put it down. Um, but you also make a, a number of uh, great historiographical arguments that I appreciated as well. Um, uh, so going on, going to going a little further on this point, um, uh, we haven't uh, talked about uh, the, the main characters in your book yet, but um, uh, one of the one of the sort of uh, the, the thing that we're really talking about here, or, or one of the things that we're really talking about here, is uh, what you call a public economy, or uh, something that was really at the core of the New Deal, something that's part of this lost legacy, aside from the different ways in which uh, it changed the, the intergovernmental uh, relationship. Um, uh, the New Deal was at its core. Uh, a public works project and that physical legacy, as you say in the beginning of your book, is is all around us and it's all around the country. And we we forget uh, the tremendous things that uh, the, uh, this partnership was able to accomplish. So, uh, could you say a little bit about that? Sure. Well, this is um, this is a striking thing about living and working in a place like New York is that it, um, you know, we think of it as a city that's always being rebuilt. You know, everything is being put up anew, torn down to make room for the next thing. Um, and yet you're surrounded by history, just the physical structures, right? Um, and so you, uh, New Yorkers are, are living every day with the physical legacy of the New Deal. Um, from the FDR uh, Highway and the West Side, the West Side Highway, Henry Hudson Parkway, um, to LaGuardia Airport, to the Triborough Bridge, to the Lincoln Tunnel, to the Queens Midtown Tunnel, to the Belt Parkway, to, uh, you know, one could go on and on. Um, uh, but- I hate to interrupt you, but I, I had to say that in my own research, I, I was in the uh, Wagner Archives one, co- one time and, and came across this wonderful, I don't know if you came across this in your research, but one of these wonderful uh, re-election uh, bills for LaGuardia, and it had a map of New York City. And literally every sort of iconic physical structure you can think of was there. And it's and, and at the bottom, there was some language to the effect of, I built all this. You know, we built all this. Re-elect LaGuardia. You know, it was a perfect sort right. of encapsulation of what you're talking about. And, um, you know, and it's, uh, if we think about it, I, I suppose that... Um, this has to do with the intersection of the National New Deal and what had been going on sort of in New York in the, in the road uh, up to the 1930s. And this is sort of what, you, what we need to understand about the subnational New Deal is the way in which 
maybe especially in places like New York, um, it builds upon um, social policy ideas and state building projects from the progressive era. Um, and we can talk about the sort of social welfare aspect of that, but in terms of infrastructure, um, you know, in the years before LaGuardia became mayor, uh, New Yorkers were starting to think about how to this new technology of the automobile. Um, and you started, you know, that's when you start seeing the first major crossings of the Holland Tunnel. Um, the George Washington Bridge is built um, right before LaGuardia becomes mayor. Um, and so these sort of, these capacities to undertake large infrastructure projects were, were there. Um, the planning capacities and, and the um, public authorities Robert Moses was going to assume command of, as well as the Port Authority. Um, these capacities were there. Projects in some cases have been started. Um, the West Side Improvement had begun in the 1920s. This Triborough <laughs> Bridge had been started in the 1920s, and it was a question of um, the New Deal supplying the resources necessary to finish these things. Um, but, uh, you know, I have a, in, in chapter four of the book, I have a table that shows the occupations, um, uh, maybe it's chapter five, I can't remember, but the, um, the occupations people worked in, in New York on the eve of the Great Depression. Um, and there are a lot of construction workers because the city was being built in the 1920s. Um, and so consequently, uh, you know, when the Depression came and threw, you know, everybody practically out of work. I mean, through people from all different kinds of occupations out of work, the city um, it was able to take advantage uh, of a lot of undervalued labor. And there were a lot of people who could, um, you know, really do first-rate construction work uh, who were able to get jobs on the WPA, on the Works Progress Administration. Um, and so I think ultimately something like two-thirds of the people who worked on WPA did construction work. Um, and so there's a huge physical imprint um, from that program in the city and from the Public Works Administration, which hires through, um, through contractors. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah, so because this was the center of what the New Deal was trying to do to address these un the, the unemployment crisis, um, the physical legacy is immense. Um, but the legacy of the New Deal goes well beyond that, too. Right. And so maybe for some of the uh, uh, listeners who are not terribly familiar with uh, the names of these uh, alphabet soup agencies, can you tell us a little bit about these, uh, the P WPA and the PWA and the CCC and these other, <laughs> these other terms that we hear tossed around sometimes? Sure. So the, the, the two key uh, programs in the New York context are the Public Works Administration, or PWA, which comes first. Um, during the 100 days in, in the spring of 1933. And that is an attempt to stimulate uh, employment and economic activity generally in the construction industries and related industries. Uh, how it works is that a municipality or a public authority or a local government or whatever um, applies for uh, a grant and aid from the federal government. And that is initially 30% of the cost of the project. Um, later, actually, LaGuardia's uh, insistence, it gets raised to 45% of the cost of the project. Um, and uh, the rest can be made available on a, you know, a low-interest loan from the federal government. Um, so, and then the, the municipality takes that money, goes out, hires a contractor the way it usually would for a public works project. Um, and they hire whoever they want. The Public Works Administration eventually uh, sets some requirements. Um, 
to avoid discrimination in hiring, number one, and to try to get as many unemployed people as possible on these projects. That's the PWA. Aid to relatively traditional um, public works projects in cities. The Works Progress Administration is a different kind of program. Um, this is a program uh, which is specifically uh, to provide short-term employment for unemployed people on public projects proposed, designed, uh, to a degree overseen by local officials. So um, people are certified as being in need of relief by municipal agencies. Um, municipal agencies propose to the Works Progress Administration ways of putting those people uh, in short-term public employment. And if that gets approved, uh, the federal government pays these people what's called a security wage, which is somewhere in between what we think of as a traditional wage and a, an income maintenance uh, payment. Uh, and municipal agencies get the benefit of these people's work. Um, and this just dumps huge amounts of labor uh, into municipal uh, agencies. So Robert Moses's Parks Department, for instance, in the middle of the New Deal, um, is reaping in the form of um, WPA labor something like 800% above what the city was appropriating for it. Um, <laughs> and there's some displacement effect, but generally that's just on top of the city parks budget. I mean, so think for a second about what that means in terms of what's possible for a municipal um, municipal state in terms of goods and services, right? That the federal government is sort of increasing uh, um, resources these agencies command, um, you know, in some... It's, I think generally, uh, you know, somewhere like 30 or 40 percent in a lot of agencies by, you know, doubling the labor at their command. And in the case of parks, you know, far beyond that. Uh, right. And in the context of the Great Depression. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, we've sort of jumped uh, a little bit uh, head straight into the book. Maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about these two characters um, uh, at the center of your story. Uh Fiorella LaGuardia and, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, I suspect uh, the listeners probably have, uh, know a little bit about these these people and their lives, but uh, maybe you can tell us about why you chose to write about these two and and um, their backgrounds and how they came to know each, each other and how they developed this partnership. Yeah, well, I was interested in bipartisanship. I mean, this book started long enough ago that it actually began before the Great uh, Recession. Um, mm -hmm. which added, well, it stirred up some new questions to ask, I suppose. Um, I would imagine, yeah. But, um, but I was, yeah, I was interested in why you saw such a close political relationship between a, a Republican mayor and a Democratic president. Um, you know, yeah, I would think for some of our listeners, it, it comes as a surprise to know that Fiala LaGuardia was uh, a Republican. It's sort of hard to imagine right. LaGuardia being uh, in today's Republican Party. LaGuardia was a Westerner. Uh, people tend to forget this also. He was born in New York in, in Greenwich Village, but grew up mostly in the Arizona Territory. And as he was coming of age, um, politically, he took his cues from the Western progressive Republicans, you know, La Follette of Wisconsin, Norris of, of Nebraska, uh, and so forth. And, um, you know, he sort of presents in his own autobiography his um, political affiliation as having to do mostly with his opposition to Tammany Hall. Um, but I think it actually started to form before that, um, and because he was a Westerner, and he always saw himself as part of that uh, tradition. You know, as a congressman in the 1920s and 1924, he bolted the Republican Party to join La Follette's. 
um, progressive party. Um, but that was really the tradition he came out of. And uh, so when he came to New York, he, you know, the other thing people don't remember about him was he was not Catholic. Um, he was an Episcopalian and, um, and a Mason, uh, too. And so he was sort of culturally, uh, you know, not of the milieu which would produce, um, you know, the first generation of Italian Democrats um, and what right. was beginning to produce that um, you know, as he was entering uh, political life. So he joined a, he joined a, you know, a waspy uh, Republican clubhouse, um, started trying to run for public office essentially right away, um, you know, and became a congressman, um, uh, one of the first Republican congressmen from, uh, from lower Manhattan. But that was, that was, you know, that was where he came from. Um, he was a Republican. He, you know, only at the very end of his life did he cease to be one, really. Um, although he became other things in the interim, um, such as right. a, a labor right uh, and briefly a socialist, actually. Right. Uh, and uh, his uh, his uh, partner in this story? Franklin Roosevelt, right, um, whose party also goes against the sociological type, actually, right? He was an upstate, uh, well-to-do um, Protestant and uh, usually that would have meant Republican, of course. Um, he, his father was a Democrat, and you know filial piety was definitely part of this. Um, his father was a sort of you know a Tilden, uh, Cleveland, upstate, good government, anti-Tammany uh, Democrat, and um, you know like LaGuardia, who got opportunities earlier than he would have if he had not been sort of unusual um, as somebody who could get you know quote unquote ethnic votes in lower Manhattan as a Republican um, opportunities opened for FDR before they would have probably uh, you know had he not been a Democrat because he could um, for starters finance his own campaign um, to run for a state Senate in 1910 um, but he was also you know he was a name in this party um, in the 1920s he was able to restart his public career um, because uh, Al Smith who was running for president uh, perpetually in the 1920s the great um, you know the first great uh, Tammany figure in um, in state and national politics um, needed an upstate Protestant basically to support his um, his uh, efforts uh, at the Democratic uh, nomination. So um, they were both, uh, they came from different parties, but neither one was always completely comfortable in his own party. Um, both, you know, there were a lot of Republicans Roosevelt admired, um, and there were some Democrats LaGuardia admired um, increasingly over the years. That was part of the basis for, um, for their collaboration. They also got along personally. They liked each other. They were both um, jokesters, gregarious types. Uh, they practiced the same kind of popular politics. Um, they came to admire each other for that. Um, but I think more than anything else, uh, they discovered they could use each other to mutual advantage. And that's a story about both. It's a story about FDR. Um, uh, assuming this mantle of bipartisanship, um, you know, he always was interested in having Republicans in his administration, in his cabinet. Um, and uh, he wanted to, he used LaGuardia's political operation as a base in New York politics. Um, 
But more than that, um, it, it gets back to this relationship we talked about earlier, right? The federal government and the municipal governments of America needed each other. Um, and that's why FDR and LaGuardia needed each other. Right, right. Um, there's a there's a there's a myth that's grown up which you refer to about uh, the two of them having a special relationship and the famous quote of uh, FDR talking about how every time uh, LaGuardia came to visit him in the Oval Office he'd uh, tell him a sob story and pretty soon the tears would be running down both their cheeks and LaGuardia would be out the door and uh, uh, with another uh, couple of million uh, dollars in his pocket um, but you say that's uh, that's not quite true. Yeah, well, that's right. Certainly, um, LaGuardia worked pretty hard to maximize the amount of uh, revenue he got out of the federal government, for sure. And the city, you know, some of this involves the city putting up, um, you know, more than many other cities did in order to get matching um, funds from the federal government. But if you actually, if you look at the numbers, what New York gets is not out of line with what Chicago or Los Angeles gets from the federal government during this period. And to the degree that it did get, uh, yeah, they, they get more actually, don't they? Yeah. I, I, Chicago got more in terms of grants, Los Angeles, maybe in terms of grants and loans combined. I can't remember the exact numbers, yeah. but it's, it's certainly not anything that fits with this story of LaGuardia going to Washington and through his personal graces, bringing it back a lot of loot from the federal treasury. Um, that's wrong in terms of um, the share of you know per capita New York gets. It's also wrong to personalize it, right? Um, it was uh, sort of the Washington New York connection. Um, it had a lot to do with the sort of visions of government that LaGuardia and Roosevelt sort of helped put into operation, but um, but it's not the personal influence that makes it happen. It's the sort of paired relationship between what the federal government you know, as directed by the New Deal coalition is able to do and what municipal governments are able to do and the sort of compatibility of these things. Um, in other words, the structure is informing the personal relationship rather than the other right. way around. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, um, it's, uh, it's always something that uh, uh, biography is sort of enjoying a, a bit of a comeback, I think. But, um, you know, for, for a long time, it was a little bit problematic to be doing a, a, a sort of book like this because it uh, felt like it was part of this uh, great man tradition that historian, professional historians have, have come to look askance at. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you talk about, you explain a little bit about um, why it's important to, to focus on these two as leaders and, and also um, why it's important to remember that they were part of a social context. Right. So in a, in a, in a sense, I, I suppose one way of interpreting, uh, uh, well, one way of, of um, thinking about what I was trying to do uh, is that, um, is to show that writing about political leaders is nothing to be scared of, <laughs> in a sense, that you can, you can write really, uh, you know, really good um, political history and write the social history of politics without consigning what are, you know, obviously very powerful people to the, to the margins of it. In other words, um, you can use, uh, people like Roosevelt and LaGuardia to understand the political history, um, as a whole. And well, let's think about how it works in this, in this book. Um, we're talking about uh, the kind of politics Roosevelt was able to make and the kind of politics LaGuardia was able to make and how these things are mutually interconnected, right? Um, that story, to me, 
starts in the progressive era um, with this exchange of policy ideas and this ferment of policy thinking that you'd associate with, say, Dan Rogers' Atlantic crossings. Right. Um, and it's the fact that this infusion of national resources uh, into municipal uh, agencies and capacities follows this period where people have been thinking really hard about how to use the government in new ways. Um, that's one way of understanding why the federal government was really able to do um, what it was able to do uh, and why municipal governments were able to do what they were able to do. So you have the progressive era is a huge part of this story, right? The rise of the modern presidency, which is something we don't associate with one particular person, right? It's a historical process. Uh, right. You know, very much also shapes this relationship between um, FDR and LaGuardia. Um, the, uh, you know, the cycle of fiscal crises in cities and the machine reform dialectic um, also plays into this. The realignment of national politics with the rise of the Democratic Party to majority status in the early 1930s. Likewise, um, sort of this contingency of the economic crisis, this global economic crisis, um, that's part of it, too. Uh, and, you know, you could go on. Um, the story is the story of New York's New Deal is tremendously shaped by what Southern Democrats in Congress do. You know, I write about this in Chapter uh, seven, I think, of the book, you know. Um, so, you know, we're, we're getting pretty far away from um, from, you know, great man theory of history here. Right. But um, what we are doing is understanding that people like Roosevelt and LaGuardia, who have agency of their own, are invested uh, with powers through their structural position in these institutions, um, they uh, shape, articulate, and constrain how these larger forces operate. They uh, do so in ways that can't be reduced to the operation of those forces on their own, right? Um, political leaders do matter. They have agency. Right. Um, but they also afford us a really good opportunity or window into thinking about how these various forces, uh, you know, whether it be the progressive social ideas and what the Southern Democrats do and the sort of institutional features of American federalism, how these things all come together, right? Um, exactly. You wouldn't you wouldn't think to tell this, in, this story of these interconnected forces um, typically, right? This is kind of a sort of a broader canvas to operate on, um, but it, it uses the sort of um, uses these uh, the careers of these two political figures to bring together, I suppose, subjects that we would usually consider in isolation. Right, and it and it and it follows the story to the end, where where you know these things usually where the story ends up, right? The centers of power and and what happens to these ideas, how they get enacted or they don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, so. Uh, but LaGuardia to uh, to uh, so LaGuardia is uh, these are these are men who who are are similar in a lot of ways, but they're also different in a lot of ways. F- FDR is is not exactly you know this is an urban studies uh, history channel, um, and the story you're talking about is one of the sort of great stories of uh, cooperation between the federal government and 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 LaGuardia building modern New York, not just modern New York, but um, uh, you know building these this leaving this tremendous infrastructural legacy across the country. Um, but yet, FDR is, as you mentioned throughout the book, is is not exactly you know uh, he's the great urban president, um, but not a lover of cities. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, Ro- Roosevelt did live in New York, uh, you know, a fair part of his life, but he considered himself more 
um, you know, he was born in Hyde Park, 90 miles up the river, um, considered himself a, a country um, gentleman. I think it, uh, on one of his census returns, he, he put down farmer as his occupation, actually, if I'm remembering <laughs> right. Um, but he, he, he always believed that New York's sort of the social problems manifested, uh, you know, during the early 20th century, you know, the sorts of things social reformers and, and municipal socialists were concerned with. Um, he thought they were products of overpopulation and his great um, scheme for addressing urban social problems was to subsidize people moving out of the cities. Um, yeah. You know, he he didn't envision sort of post-war suburbia, really. He was thinking more in terms of um, people who could work, you know, who could do a sort of subsistence farming plus, you know, work in a decentralized factory or something like that, but sort of enjoy the moral advantages as he saw them of, of country life. Um, yeah. So actually his first scheme, you know, to meet the great depression as governor of New York involved, uh, this kind of resettlement, um, proved not to be that popular, you know, but he, uh, he was still going with that sort of thinking, uh, you know, uh, in the months before the WPA was, um, was enacted. Um, yeah, they thought this would be a great idea, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a moment where Harry Hopkins is the, um, head of the WPA is explaining to a newspaperman, um, you know, why this great scheme for meeting the depression won't work. <laughs> he says, we've discovered that people like being together, basically, right? <laughs> Unemployed workers, you know, there's an advantage to being around your sort of right. network and your family. And that's how people were coping with the depression, right? It was being embedded within these urban, um, urban social networks and communities and so forth. And so, you know, for that reason, among others, this is an impractical way of doing things. Um, but, um, you know, and Roosevelt himself said at a meeting, you know, uh, which is deciding policy on these things, we've had, we've all had to give up some of what we really want, you know, um, <laughs> for instance, I've decided it's okay if we give jobs to people where they live, you know, rather than to try to sort of do this sort of social engineering. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, he always had that sort of anti-urban streak to him. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but came to see, you know, there's the, um, uh, not unlike a lot of uh, other presidents uh, that we know and talk about a lot, um, had a bit of a progression in the office um, on these questions, right? Right. And the other, um, the other piece we should talk about here is that um, has to do with the electoral calculus. Um, so really from uh, all four of FDR's elections, actually, I mean, he was always kind of going to win 32. Um, but... Uh, his Republican challenger had no uh, chance of um, of winning in the Electoral College without winning in New York. Um, and the swing states generally tended to be places like New York, Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania, where you had, you know, potentially very large Democratic majorities in the city matched up against upstate um, Republican majorities. And so, you know, just through a sort of crass electoral uh, calculus, Roosevelt would have said, you know, it is definitely to my advantage politically to drive up these margins uh, in urban places uh, as much as I can, you know, um, huge political incentives to do that. And then in 33, 34, 35 and afterwards as the labor movement is really starting to come back to life in a major way. You know, he recognizes that that's a really crucial ally. Um, and, uh, you know, and they're largely urban also. Um, and that sort of, you know, that, um, 
cements FDR as a sort of, you know, as an urban politician, really. Right. And LaGuardia steps in here uh, with an important institution as a with an important idea um, to help promote this program with the Conference of Mayors. Right. Yeah. The Conference of Mayors is a way actually um, is born before LaGuardia and Roosevelt are in power in 1932, 31, 32, I think. Um, actually, Jimmy Walker, um, the, the sort of great who. I hope who precedes LaGuardia, right? Justice yeah. by in the in the book because he wasn't quite as bad as everybody remembers, but um, he's involved in its founding. What it is basically is that um, mayors find that they can't deal with their sort of depression-born problems themselves, and that the states are not going to help, and that they need to go to Washington if they're going to get support um, for for funding relief, mostly. Um, in other words, treating locally what is clearly a national. Um, national phenomenon. Um, And so uh, the institution comes out of that, um, the United States Conference of Mayors. But then it has this really interesting history afterwards. LaGuardia, by the fall of 1934, he'd been in office nine months at that point, is its um, de facto leader and spokesman. Um, And uh, he, for the, as on behalf of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, actually takes to to Roosevelt at Hyde Park, um, a proposal for what looks actually is in all essential details, the works progress administration. Um, so the mayors are pushing for that program. Um, you know, at a time when Harry, even Harry Hopkins, who's going to run it is seeing it as something more like, um, the public works administration. Um, so mayors are, um, are crucial in pushing for this legislation. Uh, they get what they want mostly because what they are calling for is compatible with what FDR and the administration wants and what Congress will go uh, along with. And, um, and then they become really important and help sustaining its appropriation every year. Um, and, you know, you have to understand that um, um, they're a very powerful lobby because uh, of the reasons we've just been talking about. The cities are, um, are crucial for people who are running you know, statewide or nationally, number one. Um, but number two, they are helping set the bounds for this um, for this appropriation every year, uh, the WPA. Um, and in turn, um, being the administration's ally helps solidify the U.S. Conference of Mayors as a presence in national politics. Um, and this obviously, you know, this is another sort of, this is a legacy of this intergovernmental uh, relationship, um, is this lobbying institution, which is still powerful, um, in politics, uh, well into the post-war uh, era. Okay. Now, um, the third book, the third uh, part of your book deals with uh, World War II, mm-hmm. coming World War II, and the way in which that changes this relationship. Could you could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. This is um, well, you know, the, to be kind of simple about it, um, the uh, industries which are capable of producing armaments replace municipal governments as the key sort of. Um, you know, partners of the national government, right? We, uh, we don't need people uh, to work for the sake of it on public projects anymore. What we need to do is produce for the war effort. Um, and so because that relationship is no longer at the center of, um, uh, of Washington spending and so forth, that gets kind of decentered. But other things come to the fore. Uh, as the uh, war economy develops, you get... Uh, all sorts of local level 
mobilizations for things like fair employment, fair practices, um, and uh, fair, fair employment practices, rather. So fair, uh, fair employment, fair prices, fair rents, things like that. Um, right. And you describe it as a transition to uh, cost of living, but it's also these other things as well, discrimination, these other things that become important later on. Right. And um, they're, you know, uh, municipal governments aren't partners in quite the same way uh, with Washington anymore, but they do have a really important role to play in um, sort of interfacing with these national programs like the uh, Office of Price Administration. Um, so, you know, for instance, um, the OPA is in charge of um, managing or constraining inflation. Uh, and th- one of the ways it does so is by setting uh, ceilings on rents, right? Um, sort of national rent control state by state. Um, New York, in part because it was cut out of war production in the early years of World War II, doesn't have a particularly um, you know, notable increase in rents uh, while this is going on in Washington. Um, but people start mobilizing uh, at the city level to try to get um, uh, a government presence in this relationship between landlord and renter. And uh, LaGuardia has been a sort of pro-renter politician going back to, you know, the World War I era. Um, mm-hmm. And he sees this stuff start to percolate. Um, and he starts organizing basically through the mayor's office a campaign to bring rent control to New York, right? So this is a purely national program. Um, local officials don't have a role to play in administering it in, in the same way they do during the, the New Deal era. Um, but they still have a role to play. And so LaGuardia uh, starts collecting. He solicits through his um, you know, weekly radio talks um, complaints. You know, if somebody has been trying to raise your rent or violate the OPA's, uh, what would be the OPA's rent guidelines, you know, let me know. If you're getting gouged, right to the mayor's office. Um, you know, and his, his house, uh, housing agency goes out and collects data on rent increases and so forth. And LaGuardia takes all this stuff um, to the OPA in Washington to make a case for rent control in the city. And when it finally does happen um, in the fall of 1943, I think, um, you know, everybody understands that this is a political intervention, which has brought it right. There's no technocratic basis for bringing rent to control to New York. Uh, when it does, it's come because local politics has um, has interfaced with and articulated um, these, these sort of national um, cost of living politics. And it's sort of fed back and created this really robust um, system locally. And, uh, you know, and there are all kinds of ways in which LaGuardia takes advantage of this, uh, you know, in, in terms of um, the sort of day-to-day cost of living um, during World War II and sort of getting on the, on the right side of those issues in the city. Um, and, uh, you know, this, the story of rent control in New York uh, exemplifies a general pattern um, during this period, which is that, so the, the WPA, for instance, gets discontinued in 1943, right? Um, starts getting cut back in the late 30s because of what the Southern Democrats in Congress decided to do about it and the rebirth of the Congressional Republicans. Um, As these national-level institutions get discontinued, um, their initiatives get picked up at the state and local level. The New Deal gets... Some of the more radical features of the National New Deal get incorporated into state and local politics and government in a way that we're only just beginning to understand. Um, 
In other words, the New Deal has this vast subnational legacy, um, which we need to be thinking a lot more about. And so, you know, rent control in New York. Rent control has come to New York through what the national government is doing. Fair employment practices comes to New York and other places through what um, the national government is doing. You know, this vast increase in the, the sort of in the Parks Department comes to New York thanks to what the national government was doing, right? But the WPA is gone in 1943. The OPA uh, is gone and by the end of 1946 or early 1947. Um, as these things get discontinued as either intergovernmental partnerships or national initiatives, um, they have produced a politics which allows them to get incorporated into the day-to-day workings of the state. Um, the state, in the case of fair employment practices, through Ives Quinn in 47, I think, um, and, uh, you know, and rent control um, at the state level. Um, but then this stimulates the development of the municipal government, which is expanding all through the post-war period to take on functions which in the 1930s had been um, partnerships, um, become, you know, increasingly uh, the municipal government doing uh, through extraction what it had been able to do through allocating the New Deal infusion uh, in the 30s. And this, and the, and then in the aftermath of what happens at the national level, and 37, 38, when the Southern Democrats uh, line up with the conservative wing of the GOP to, to thwart a lot of um, uh, FDR's initiative, uh, prompts LaGuardia and FDR himself to start thinking about uh, the need for realignment, which is something of a campaign among certain uh, liberal elites in the post-war era. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is, well, LaGuardia's interest in it comes from the fact that he is you know, probably not going to get nominated for the things he wants to become after being mayor uh, in the Republican Party and definitely not in the Democratic Party. Um, but so there's the personal element. He is thinking also, you know, he, he is voicing what becomes the conventional wisdom coming out of the late 30s. And this is exactly what's feeding into those calls for responsible uh, parties in the post-war period is um, a sense that you're only really going to get you know, vigorous progressive action if you have all the progressives in one party. And party loyalty is in the need to sort of, you know, maintain relations with the conservative elements from the parties. Um, you know, that's sort of imperfect parties is going to constrain progressive political action for those reasons. And so LaGuardia's vision, uh, and in a sense Roosevelt's too, although he's con- he is committed sincerely to the Democratic Party, um, is of is one of all the progressives, um, you know, um, somehow ending up in the same political party. Um, you know, LaGuardia at various moments thinks that's going to be, you know, maybe the democratic party. It might be a third party, a progressive party in which he's going to be a major figure along with La Follette's, uh, Robert LaFollette's kids, uh, young Bob and, and Phil LaFollette and, right. um, still faded like, attempt to create a yeah. role and so forth. Um, you know, FDR, I think, you know, sometimes he talks that way, but always really thinks uh, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the project is to turn the Democratic Party into the progressive party. Right. But but, uh, but yeah, they, they definitely start thinking that way um, in the late 1930s. Um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And LaGuardia is continuing that conversation with Eleanor after uh, FDR dies. Right. Um, it's... Uh, it tends to go away during the war years. And then post-war, he's really, um, he's lost faith completely in the Republican Party at the national level. 
Um, but he's just aghast at what the, the Southern Democrats in particular are doing. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's voting for and then voting to override uh, Truman's veto of Taft-Hartley in 1947, which really brings him to the point of despair. Um, but there's other stuff, too. There's public housing. There's um, the push for national health insurance, which LaGuardia was completely committed to um, in the last years of his life. In fact, had been trying to sort of prod along through um, his own sort of local health plan in New York during the war years. Um, it's this realignment of the Democratic Party. Um, a sort of rebirth of, of conservative uh, capital D democracy um, in the early post-war years that gets him thinking, you know, what are we going to do uh, about this, you know? And by, you know, shortly before he takes ill for good, uh, he's starting to have these conversations with Henry Wallace uh, yeah. about, you know, going out into the country and making the case for, uh, you know, a continued New Deal, Um which, you know, Truman's Democrats don't seem to be capable of being the custodians of. Um, but then also sort of backing away from some of the incipient Cold War uh, stuff as well. Um, and uh, there's talk that um, Wallace, if he is going to run, you know, in 1948, might take uh, LaGuardia's his running mate on a third party progressive ticket. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and who knows? It's uh, LaGuardia died in September 1947 before having to really, you know, confront. Um, this question, what would he have done in the politics of the post-war era? You know, um, one's left to sort of surmise, but he never had to make that decision. Yeah. But was definitely, that was really, you know, if he had lived another year, that would have been a question he wouldn't have been able to avoid answering. Well, I'm terribly tempted to ask you a a couple of more questions before, uh, before I let you go, but I think we're sort of nearing the end of our, uh, time here. Um, there's a traditional question that they ask on new books in history, which is, what are you working on next? <laughs> I am working on a, uh, well, the question I'm trying to answer is, why did, in the early to mid-1980s, um, New York City in particular start policing street-level drug markets in a dramatically new way? Um, there's this period of about 10 years after enactment of the Rockefeller laws in, in 73 that, um, that they're not really fully operational because police departments have decided not to feed people into them. Um, in other words, not to sort of actually arrest the people who are at risk for being subjected to these draconian sentences. Um, and they decide very consciously not to sort of participate in this Rockefeller, um, law schema. And really 1984 is kind of the watershed year. Um, the NYPD and the municipal government completely reverse course, decide to start policing street-level drug markets um, in a very intensive way, and that's the most proximate cause of the explosion of um, the incarcerated population in the 1980s um, in New York. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out exactly why that is. I have, I have some guesses, but we'll, we'll have to wait to see for sure. That sounds fascinating and, and timely. Well, Mason, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, I encourage everyone that's listening to uh, run out right now and get your book. It's uh, terribly well written. It's fantastically researched. And, uh, terribly well written is the, the best way to put it, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much again for having me on, Peter. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. My pleasure. Bye, Mason. <laughs>